It is our natural human tendency to want to speed through Holy Week, to want to jump past Good Friday, to get to Easter morning. It is our human tendency to want to maximize the good, minimize the bad. But it's interesting to note that the Bible slows down when it comes to Passion Week. Almost one-third of all the words of the Gospels are spent telling the story of this one week of history. And this evening we come to that decisive moment. Philip Yancey writes, it, writes about it this way. He says, the most powerful political empire, the most sophisticated religious system on the planet at the time joined forces against one man. But yet, we hear these words. Matthew 27, 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. Now Mark's gospel focuses in even more clearly and says that those words came out of the mouth of that particular centurion. So the question is asked, what did the centurion see in Jesus that caused him to come to this conclusion, this conclusion that others were missing and that the Sanhedrin was denying? Now, we shouldn't press Trinitarian theology into his understanding. Surely he didn't have all of the, all of the ramifications straight, but he saw Jesus as a divine person, as something special. He sensed that what they were doing was a profound wrong. What did he see in Jesus? He saw humility in Jesus. And I'll make the difference between humility and humiliation, because humiliation was part of the package of crucifixion. That's why they had you carry that cross piece through the streets while the crowds jeered. That's why they crucified the victims naked in front of the crowds. Humiliation is a given. The centurion has seen it over and over again. But humility, that's different. This centurion might have been one of those ones who mocked and had beaten Jesus earlier in the day. It was the soldiers who took that claim of Jesus being the king of the Jews and twisted it into a horrible game, shaping that crown of thorns and forcing it down on his head. And it was the soldiers who administered the scourging, the whipping, which killed many all of its own. But he saw how Jesus handled it all. Recorded in Luke, he saw how Jesus asked his father to forgive his tormentors. Luke also records that he gave gracious forgiveness to the criminal who repented on the cross next to his. This soldier must have seen hundreds of crucifixions. And he has heard screams and he has heard curses. He has heard sometimes the whimpering weakness of death and the raging defiance from others. People come in all stripes. But humility of that sort, demonstrating concern for others while suffering so greatly, I don't think he's seen that before. He also saw the abandonment of Christ. Of course, of course he's abandoned by people. His followers ran in all directions. The Gospels tell us that it's just a small band of people nearby to the cross, weeping and witnessing 
this terrible scene. Most of the crowd were throwing insults at him. But worse than any abandonment by humans was the abandonment by God the Father. Because both Matthew and Mark record the moment that happened. Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. It means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're familiar with that. But I want you to pause to consider this. Both Mark and Matthew, as they write their Gospels, bring that phrase to us untranslated. Both of them bring it in the Aramaic, the common street language that Jesus would have spoke, spoken. Now, usually the Gospels translate Jesus' words into Greek, and we have that translation into English. But here, they don't touch the words. It's almost as if the sheer force of the moment defied translation. It's like we are on verbal holy ground here. We're just going to bring it in. And it's the moment when he's literally God-forsaken, a cry of abandonment. And to express that abandonment, Jesus is actually reaching back centuries to the writing of King David. In Psalm 22, verse 1, David writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Jesus sees his suffering in that quote. He reaches back for that moment. And David felt that way as well. And why has God turned his back? Because there Jesus is bearing the guilt of our sin. There he's taking it on himself. And up until now, throughout all of eternity, he has existed in perfect favor with his Father. But now he bears wrath. We can't know what he was feeling for sure. We can't imagine the loss and the grief. He was becoming sin, the Apostle Paul says. Became sin for us. The centurion saw that. And he also saw the confusion in the crowd. In the din of the crowd, among the shouts and the screams, a rumor starts to circulate. A rumor that was present in the day. It was kind of a, uh, just one of those tales that people tell. Jesus was calling, they said, for Elijah. And the tradition that was told was that in the case of exceptionally pious people, in those who really were devout, when they suffered, Elijah, the prophet who never died but was taken up into heaven, Elijah would come and rescue. And so they watched. They asked, is Elijah coming? Because if Elijah shows up here, we've gotten the wrong man. And this is all wrong. You see, in their minds, believing that rumor, because Elijah did not come, it's just another mark against Jesus. But not only is that a false idea about Elijah, it's the wrong idea about Jesus. He was not rescued because he was doing the rescuing. He was doing the rescuing for people just like the ones who were mocking him, for sinners just like me and just like you. The centurion saw that, and the centurion saw nature's reaction. Verse 51 says this, At that moment the temple 
The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split. The centurion saw darkness at midday. He saw earthquake all around him. He didn't see the temple curtain ripped, nor probably did he see the graves open, which is also in the, in the telling of the, of the scene, but he saw enough. He saw evidence that in his mind would have spoken about an angry God. <clears throat> it seems possible that this centurion had become a God-fearer, one who has come to respect the idea of the Jewish God, the one God. And just a hint here, because he refers to God in the singular in this passage. But all of his Roman background would have trained him to pay attention to omens. And the omens all around, darkness at midday, earthquake, we are making a mistake. And he felt that. And so he saw one more thing. He saw his own heart change. Surely. He was the Son of God. He has been complicit in the death of the one he now respects. <clears throat> Sometimes we wonder why God doesn't intervene when evil happens in the world. We wonder, why doesn't he stop Hitler or Stalin or now Putin? Why such restraint when such evil is going on? But nothing compares to the restraint of this evening when God the Father steps away from helping God the Son and the world is hitting rock bottom and the soldier saw it and he and a few of his friends recognized it. But what he didn't see was the connection that all of this had to ancient history, the ancient history of the Jews. He could not have comprehended that Jesus' death on Passover weekend it was a prearranged death in an orchestrated time. He couldn't have understood that there was a plan executed by the man on the cross himself. And tonight, as I reminded you as we started, we paused to note that we are still, we are in an unusual moment in 2022 because as sundown comes this evening, Passover starts once again. At Passover, the Jews celebrate the Exodus. And Jesus timed this occurrence so that we would know that He is providing for us a new Exodus, an Exodus from the captivity to sin. Moses speaks these words. Uh, God speaks these words to Moses back in Exodus verse tw uh, chapter 12. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destruction, no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The blood of the Passover lambs protected God's people. And now here on this Friday, it's the final lamb, the perfect sacrifice. And His blood protects us once again. And it's all an act of mercy, an illustrated act of mercy. 1,400 years before Jesus, God provides rescue for His people out of Egypt, and that was mercy, and here on the cross, rescue for those who believe. A merciful Father and a suffering Son, so that we might know the transforming power of rebirth through the power of God the Holy Spirit. The dark of Friday will soon give way to the light of Sunday. And a new exodus is possible for all of us because of what He did.
And this is all love. And for that, we are all thankful, and we say, Amen. 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 So this evening we're going to share the communion elements. These are the elements that Jesus introduced in that modified Passover meal that He had on Thursday of Holy Week. And we're going to do that by taking communion at stations. And uh, that means that in a few minutes uh, there will be servers who come to these communion stations and we'll ask you to quietly get up out of your seat and come and receive the elements. Uh, you can take the elements at the table, but if it's crowded and you want to go back to your seat and do it there, that's fine too. And so at this point, I'm going to ask the communion servers to go to their stations. So just go ahead, don't be bashful. Go ahead and do that. And while they're moving, for the rest of us, I'd like you to think about these words from John chapter 10. Jesus is speaking here and He says this, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. The heart of the gospel message is this, that Jesus faced down the consequences of our sin. He has taken our pain on Himself, and through great suffering, He has allowed the possibility of salvation for those who believe. And Jesus wants us to know in these words from the Gospel of John that this was not a choice that was forced on Him. He freely chose the way of suffering. He chose the pain. He chose the nails. He, no, he chose this because this is the way of victory. Jesus was not coerced to the cross. And your salvation is not grudgingly given. It is given because God looks at you and sees you worth dying for. That's the message of Good Friday. And for that we rejoice. So I'm going to ask you to prepare for communion this evening in a moment of silent prayer. And then I'll lead in a prayer. And after we have prayed, we will show two videos that will bring our thoughts to the cross once again. During the showing of those videos, when you feel you are ready, make your way to the communion station of your choice and take the elements that symbolize the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Let's pray together. Would you bow for prayer? And silently prepare yourself. Confess what needs to be confessed. Lord, You've asked us to remember You in this tangible way. You've asked us to recall Your broken body and Your shed blood. And not just to remember it, but to symbolically take it into ourselves. Saying once again that You are ours and we are Yours. 
You are a part of us and we are a part of you. Lord, we are privileged to do so, not because we're perfect, not because we get everything right, but because you are perfect and you get everything right and you invite us to righteousness. So, Lord, we pray that you are pleased as we partake in communion this evening. We pray that you are honored and that as our praise and worship symbolically is raised to you, that you bring down on us the blessing that you want to give. So thank you in advance for what you will do. Thank you for what you have done. In your name we pray. Amen.